This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Good morning. It's Tuesday, February 21st, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI-tv. I'm Alex Smythe, in for a Dave Brown. Let's hit those horns and go. Coming up on the show today, Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press reviews the latest news making waves across the country. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore discusses the government's latest report on medical assistance in dying and contestants Karen McGee weekly news quiz. But January later this morning, Karen Rebo sets the stage. The federal agency's Consumer Price Index report will give insight on how high prices were in January compared with a year ago, as well as the month prior. Canada's annual inflation rate has been slowing since September, reaching 6.3% in December. Economists say the cost of groceries, which has been a pain point for many Canadians, likely eased last month as agriculture commodity prices moderated. But some are predicting that higher fuel prices in January may have hindered the inflation rates downward trend. Karen Rebo, the Canadian Press. And as we were prepping for the show t- uh, today, just a couple minutes ago, the number actually did come out and it is inflation is down to 5.9%, which is slightly lower than last month at a 6.3 and even lower than experts predicted. So the federal government is in hot water with the National Center for Truth and Reconciliation after awarding a contract to an international group to help advise the government on unmarked graves. Stephanie Taylor has more. The Centre says it's deeply concerned with Ottawa's decision to hire a Netherlands-based organization to launch what it calls an extremely sensitive engagement process around unmarked graves. It says the International Commission on Missing Persons is not Indigenous-led and that it lacks experience working with residential school survivors. The federal government says the agreement with the international group ensures the involvement of Indigenous facilitators. But the centre questions why it partnered with the Commission at all, when it already asked Indigenous experts to lead similar work. Stephanie Taylor, the Canadian Press, Ottawa. And over to international news. Uh, Ukraine is seeking Canada's help to keep the country's rail system operational as the war with Russia continues. Laura Osman shares more. Ukraine's rail system plays a vital role in the war effort from evacuating occupied cities and transporting the wounded to delivering aid to the front and territories that have been restored from Russian occupation. Constant attacks on rail and other critical infrastructure has rendered 20% of the system unusable and led to the deaths of hundreds of rail workers. Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra helped broker an agreement in the fall between Canadian rail companies and Ukrainian railways, including sourcing parts from Canadian manufacturers. A representative of the railway hopes Canadian expertise and parts can help Ukraine not only repair what's been damaged, but improve it for the future. Laura Osman, the Canadian Press, Lviv, Ukraine. And staying on the international front, as tensions over North Korea's latest missile tests uh, increase, the UN has rejected calls to condemn their actions. Shannon Crawford has more. 
Even as North Korea ramps up its nuclear threats and ballistic missile testing, the United Nations Security Council isn't taking any action. That's because Russia and China, two of the body's powerful veto-wielding members, are refusing to support any measure against Pyongyang. They've blocked all of our attempts at robust responses. At an emergency meeting, U.S. Ambassador to the U.N. Linda Thomas-Greenfield urged representatives from both countries to at the very least formally condemn the launches. Those pleas were ignored. The council's lack of action is worse than shameful. It is dangerous. Shannon Crawford, ABC News, Washington. In medical news, there is a new technology that is showing promise for stroke victims dealing with partial paralysis. Shelley Adler files this report. It's the first-of-its-kind experiment. Heather Rendulik of Pennsylvania could not use her left arm or hand due to a stroke. Researchers implanted a device that zaps the 33-year-old spinal cord in spots that control hand and arm motions, and it worked. Everything we did uh, just blew me out, out of the water, blew my mind that... You know, this technology was helping me improve in ways that I didn't think were possible. It's not a cure because the effects end after researchers remove the device and far more study is needed. But this stimulator technology already is being tested to help people move their legs after a spinal cord injury. I'm Shelly Adler. And that's it for the news. We are turning our attention over to the Daily Poll today. But before we go to today's poll, let's start with the results from Friday. So we asked you, do you ever delete posts you make on social media? 79% of you said yes, and 21% of you said no. So that's uh, fairly consistent. And now we head for today's poll question, which is going to tie into our tech trends uh, clip later on in the show. And so we're asking you, how concerned are you that AI might impact how we learn? Are you very concerned, somewhat concerned, or not concerned at all? Uh, I'll be honest, this is something that is kind of on my mind. I'm wondering how it's going to really change the way we currently learn, the way we're currently in school, the types of testing and studying and performance reviewing that we are doing to show competency and learning and are we going to change how we write things like that so i want to bring in mike ross to get his perspective on this issue and ask him the question mike okay how concerned are you that ai is going to impact how we learn i am not particularly concerned about how it's going to impact how we learn in fact i think if you look at how testing is done if you look at how uh, teaching strategies have had to change over you know the decades um this is nothing new and that's because kids brains are wired differently now than they were 50 years ago so you need to because of screen time and their uh, availability of uh, computers and tablets and phones so much of their learning is done visually that you have to alter a lot of your teaching uh, to visual mediums. And, and I mean, you see that in schools. I see it in the sports that I coach, that uh, I, I actually have an app on my phone, on my tablet, that will allow me to videotape a kid uh, at the plate in baseball and then show them uh, you know, sort of breaking things down uh, for their swing. And, and, and it's 
easier for them to see it and learn than for me to just explain it and for them to learn. I think the bigger concern for me about AI is going to be how it impacts our lives as far as making decisions for us or overruling you know, ways that we act and the things that we do and start correcting us or going off and acting on its own. So we've heard a couple of stories recently about AI programs kind of making their own decisions and saying, hey, I think I could do this job better than a human being could do it. And you kind of start having those sort of Twilight Zone, uh, sci-fi, uh, you know, images pop into your brain about AI sort of taking over the world or taking, at least taking over parts of it. So I think that's my bigger concern. Um, I, I think our learning abilities and the and, and the way we learn is always evolving based on how we as humans are changing and how our habits change. But I don't want AI taking over and and running the world for us. Well, and one thing that I'm kind of starting to, as you, you kind of uh, talked about where your concerns lie, I, I also wonder in terms of things like the science community and, and academia and, you know, a large part of what professors and, and uh, uh, doctors in, in different industries are doing, they're, they're publishing articles, they're doing research, they are formulating hypotheses and executing them and testing and seeing how it holds up. I wonder how AI is going to play a role in that because, you know, probably some of the larger and and lengthier uh, aspects of doing that is coming up with the report after the fact. We, we've already seen these stories and these examples of like chatbots and stuff starting to write articles and doing things like that. Are they going to start formulating these, uh, you know, these journal articles for, for these researchers and then they're going to start crunching the numbers and at a certain point you're wondering, okay, well, what left is there for the humans and and people to actually do to be involved in this process other than here we input all the data and everything else is just generated for us well it's kind of interesting don't you think that this is now go you're talking about it going into the realm of science academia uh but to a certain degree it's just sort of the logical next place for it to go, right? Because it's taken over manufacturing. When you look at uh, manufacturing jobs in in North America um, and, and watch, watch a show like how it's made, right? And I was watching one recently about how they pack um, peas, like uh, frozen peas. So they went from the farming of them to the harvesting of them to then the the uh, the cleaning the packaging everything that happens at the plant well i would say about 85% to 90% of the work involved in the packaging the processing etc and, and then finally shipping out of those frozen peas is done by machines and we've sort of already eliminated the the human factor when it comes to a lot of the work that we do so I think it's it's almost only natural to to have it sort of evolve to the next step, which is what, which is taking over in other uh, domains, science and academia included. Um, I think there's still always going to be the role of the human being because learning and 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 discovering, I think, is just embedded in us. It's just part of who we are, and and I don't think AI can ever take that away. 
I think it can become a, a, a useful tool. But again, I don't want to see it taking over. I have no problem with a relationship between science and AI working together, but I, I just don't want to see it taking over. And uh, we we seen enough sci-fi and, and fiction <laughs> of uh, the AI just starting off as a cozy relationship and then taking over and then we're all doomed. Mike, thank you so much for this. We'll come back to you in a second to get the weather update. But for you at home, please be sure to uh, vote on our polls and participate, share your thoughts. You can do so by going to Facebook at Accessible Media Inc. or also vote on Twitter at Accessible Media. And now we're gonna head back to Mike who has our weather update. Thank you very much, Alex. We are going to begin your national weather report in Newfoundland and St. John's. It's gonna have some rain. Time's going to be heavy. It'll end this afternoon, about 20 to 40 millimeters total, and winds will gust up to 100 kilometers per hour. The high will be plus 5. Halifax has a mix of sun and clouds today and a high of plus 3. Montreal flurries, heavy at times. The high is minus 5. The wind chill this morning, minus 23. Ottawa has flurries today, about four, uh, 2 to 4 in total. The high is minus 5. The wind chill this morning, minus 20. Toronto has increasing cloudiness through the day and a high of plus four. In Thunder Bay, Ontario, a mix of sun and clouds, a high of minus nine, and the wind chill minus 23 this morning. To Winnipeg, it'll be mainly sunny with a high of minus 18. The wind chill this morning, minus 34, and that comes with a risk of frostbite. Similar situation in Saskatoon today, where it'll be mainly sunny, the high minus 22, the wind chill this morning, minus 36. Let's go to Calgary. Snow coming your way, about two centimeters in total. The temperature will be minus 19, the wind chill near minus 28. In Edmonton, mainly cloudy with temperatures near minus 18 degrees and a wind chill near minus 27. Yellowknife has mainly sunny skies with a high of minus 27. The wind chill there today, minus 47. It'll go up to minus 38 in the afternoon. And in Vancouver, it'll be mainly cloudy with a high of 8 degrees. Victoria, same thing. Cloudy skies, but your high is 8 degrees as well. And that is your National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, we'll check in with you later on in the show. But coming up next, Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press reviews the latest news making waves across the country. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you live on AMI-tv. At the start of each week, we like to find out what's making news over the weekend. So, to help us do that, we bring in Michelle McQuig, the weekend news editor with the Canadian Press, to help recap the latest stories across the country. Good morning, Michelle. How are you doing? <clears throat> Good morning, Alex. I'm well. How are you? I'm not too bad. Filling in for Dave Good. again, the first time in a while. So, excited yeah, to do that. Back. Thank you. So, first off, Michelle, the I guess one of the biggest news stories happening was the Emergencies Act report finally came out on Friday <laughs> afternoon. So can you kind of break down some of the key points in that final report? 
Uh, I will try. Uh, I will note that summarizing a 2,000-page report is no mean feat, but we'll do our best. Um, so it, it was an extraordinarily detailed look at, at, at all kinds of aspects of the invocation. Uh, it looked at all the various things that the, the Invoking the Emergency Act allowed, every individual power that was granted to the government. And every one of those was assessed on its own individual merits. And there were lots of criticisms to be found, and we can explore some of those in a bit. But the overall and bottom line conclusion of this review was that the government did meet the threshold to invoke the, the Emergencies Act. That's not to say that there were not mistakes made along the way, according to Paul Rouleau, who was the commissioner assigning, assigned to oversee this process and who the one who's, who produced this report. Uh, but overall... The conclusion was that the, the convoy protests did pose enough of a risk to national security and to the economic security of the country through the border blockades and whatnot to have this act invoked. And so, as you mentioned, it was uh, they did deem it that it was justified to invoke the act. So what were some of these, the, the key rationale for why it was justified? <clears throat> Um, basically, the, the economic arguments held a lot of sway. Uh, the, the tying up of police resources was another one that was, was cited as a, as a major problem. Uh, he did note that whilst a lot of the protesters were, were peaceful and did not have any kind of nefarious intent, uh, he did note that some uh, do appear to have more, more serious aims in view with their participation in the protests. You'll remember that some of the people uh, who were arrested at border blockades are now facing criminal charges related to conspiracies to commit other offenses. So all of those things were cited as as the main issues behind why it was okay to invoke the act. But like I said, there were lots of critiques to go around to a lot of players, not just the federal government either, although they did come in for some, some criticisms. Um, they were accused of applying some measures too broadly, uh, not necessarily being specific enough in some others. Um, but there were lots of critiques for police forces, for the Ontario government, for the Canada, Canada Border Services Agency. Um, he took a very close look at all players, and I don't think anyone got away entirely without some kind of critique. Yeah, one of the big takeaways I had from the report and, and some of the key findings was the fact that, you know, this was a breakdown in intergovernmental relationships and, and, and mm -hmm. uh, co uh, cohesiveness, which was something we had talked about when we had followed along throughout the process of this inquiry and trial, but it really kind of laid to bear all these issues that were found in... in <clears throat> where Ontario failed to step up, where the, the cities were kind of slow to react, where the government, as you said, kind of were too broad in some of their approaches. Mm -hmm. so it, where it police was... forces didn't have plans in place that perhaps they ought to have had. There were, yeah, like there, there was lots of critiques. And the, the, the intergovernmental part that you mentioned is really interesting because that report had some pretty pointed words for the Ontario government. You might recall that <clears throat> there were efforts to try to get Premier Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones, who was the health minister at the time, uh, excuse me, the Solicitor General at the time of the protests, uh, to testify before the inquiry, and they did not do that. They invoked parliamentary privilege and and, and declined. Uh, so that report uh, talked about how the Ontario government, the, Rouleau used the word abandoned for that. Uh, they said that they abandoned the residents of Ottawa. They were not present with the, with the federal government. They didn't participate or, or engage to the degree they should have. It sounds like that kind of involvement only began to ramp up when the border crossings became more of a factor than the, the situation in Ottawa proper. So <clears throat> um, that was a pretty dramatic example there. But of course, there were other governments involved throughout and uh, Rouleau had, had commentary on, on all of it. <laughs> Now, did the, the <coughs> findings and the uh, the deeming that the act invocation was justified, did that surprise you at all? 
I would have gone either way on this. I, I didn't, I was really reluctant to make a prediction because we heard so much very compelling testimony throughout that whole inquiry process. And it was pretty clear that the commissioner was, was going to not just paint paint with both kinds of brushes, both broad and minute. So I really wasn't sure how he was going to go about this. I, I, I can't offer my own subjective opinion on whether or not I agree with his finding, but uh, I was I surprised. I would say no more surprised than I would have been if he'd gone the other way. Uh, there, there was there was a lot of evidence to consider, and this really could have taken any any path. Absolutely. Now, in terms of where do we go from here, were there suggestions? There were there changes put forth that you know, try to ensure that we don't end up here in the future? What what was offered as the, the moving forward point? Yeah, well, I mean, as I said before, there were there were comments made and, and suggestions offered on each of the powers that the Emergency Act granted, or at least commentary on how they were applied in this instance that I think are meant to serve as guides for the future. So things like, for instance, freezing bank accounts. Rouleau found that the government uh, was it was too blunt in that approach, that they, they, that policy, while appropriate in some measures, did also affect some who shouldn't have been affected. And so he made some suggestions for narrowing that impact in future. Same with uh, prohibiting gathering in certain public places. He said the government did the right thing by targeting uh, specific areas of location rather than specific types of protesters, but said that there were a couple of loopholes there that gave the government a bit too much latitude. So those kinds of guidance are there. I don't know what's going to happen to it still. And to be honest with you, a 2,000-page report uh, handed out just before a long weekend, there's still a lot of digesting going on and people trying to process its its full contents. So I think the immediate fallout will be taking shape over the weeks to come. Absolutely. You know, the, as you mentioned, this is a long report. It was on a long weekend. This is something that we are going to continue to discuss, dissect going forward. But Oh, yeah. The, the, <laughs> We've the not heard the last of this. Exactly. The, the immediate uh, end of it is here, but uh, it's going to be lingering for a while. There is another story you wanted to talk about, and it's with regards to repatriating Indigenous artifacts. So there was a couple stories over the weekend that grabbed your attention. Can you kind of tell us a bit about this issue and those stories? Yeah, sure. There have been two incidents recently of, of very interesting cases of, of Indigenous artifacts that are being repatriated back home after long, long absences, uh, once in another country, one still within Canada, but a very, very long way away from home. And in both cases, what's been interesting is that the repatriation was a really collaborative effort between the First Nations in question and the institutions that had them in their collections. Uh, so the, the two cases I'm thinking of one involves a couple of artifacts, a turtle rattle and a medicine mask that were stored at a, a museum in Geneva, Switzerland. This belonged to the Haudenosaunee Iroquois Confederacy in Quebec. And uh, someone came across the, the, those two objects in an exhibit at the museum back in the summer, immediately raised concerns with the museum. And they said the museum could not have been more cooperative and responsive to their concerns. They, they took them out of the exhibit. They offered to ship them back directly to the First Nation in Quebec, but they decided to form a, a delegation to go back and collect it themselves instead. They said the museum was incredibly cooperative at every step of the process. And those two artifacts are now back in Quebec. So that was, uh, and a similar case was unfolding uh, similar in terms of outcome, but not in terms of the lead up, which is in it kind of makes the Swiss museum example a bit more striking in that context. 
out in BC in the community of Bella Coola, which is about a thousand kilometers northwest of Vancouver. It's a long way off and it's even further off from Victoria, which is where a totem pole that belonged to this community in Bella Coola was at a museum. Um, in all cases, the artifacts are apparently taken without consent uh, and the museums are acknowledging as much. This t fight to get the totem pole back home in Bella Coola was a much longer drawn out process. Uh, this involved the the grand the hereditary chief, who was the great grandson of the man who carved the totem pole in the first place. He started asking for this totem pole back years ago. It wound up he, he wound up threatening legal action. It was getting much messier. But at the end of the day, that totem pole, after a very elaborate, very moving ceremony yesterday, is now back in Bella Coola after a long, arduous journey, both in terms of time and distance. Uh, yeah, it's it's. Very interesting because both these these examples are are similar, but they're also very different. As you mentioned, it's it's the process, the length, the time that it took to uh, get these artifacts back to where they belong, and mm -hmm. to think that okay, well, the internationally linked uh, 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 transition was far quicker than the one that was uh, domestic, <laughs> that was far closer, you know, in terms of distance traveled to go from Vancouver to Bella Coola, but it, it's. We've been hearing more and more of these stories and just more awareness of, okay, especially museums and artifacts, like, mm -hmm. where where are these artifacts coming from? Did these places come to them ethically, uh, uh, you know, ethically, uh, yeah. ethically and, and, and properly? Exactly. Or were these just ransacked from uh, local populations, from people in, uh, all throughout uh, the, the ages? So do you see this as becoming a bit more common as we move forward, that there's especially when looking at the Geneva uh, Museum example, that there's going to be more collaboration, more willingness to I identify, okay, well, maybe we don't have these artifacts uh, properly and, and it's about time we return them to the rightful owners. Yeah, I think that is definitely the way things are headed. Uh, and, and I think that's why the the delegation who retrieved the, the objects from the museum in Geneva were so careful to to heap praise on the organization for for making sure that that was a seamless process probably because of past fights like the situation in Bella Coola where there was legal action threatened or even taken um and what's what is really striking too is that these museums are acknowledging what you kind of talked about before but no these objects were not necessarily uh taken ethically in fact the museum in geneva did say they were taken without consent we don't know exactly how the totem pole wound up at the royal museum in victoria um, but it was apparently taken again uh, without any kind of discussion it was while the the first nation in question was off the land for a brief time so i think those kinds of conversations are happening more and perhaps the fact that these issues are so much more prominent it helped get the geneva wheels turning a little faster i don't know if it's a chicken and egg situation or, or exactly how the cycle plays out. But I do think that we've been seeing templates of a different way of doing things on this particular issue. And uh, certainly based on the reactions from these Indigenous communities that are getting their artifacts back, uh, there's a lot of really, really powerful emotion behind a lot of this. Uh, so I think this might be a, a genie that's hard to put back in the bottle. And I think that's probably best for all concerned. Absolutely, Michelle. I, I think that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much for taking the time wrapping up and uh, filling us in on all the news of the weekend and we'll be checking in with you later in the week for the weekly news panel sounds good alex take care yeah that is michelle mcquig the weekend news editor with the canadian press coming up after the break accessibility reporter megan gilmore discusses the government's latest report on medical assistance in dying but first 
Here is Canadian Press reporter Karen Rebo with your Morning Business Minute. North American stock markets return to business this morning after a holiday Monday for eight provinces marking Family Day or other holidays and America's National President's Day holiday. Toronto's TSX index lost 91 points in its last trading session Friday to close at 20,515. New York's Dow Jones on Friday gained 129 points and the Nasdaq dropped 68. In Tokyo this morning, the Nikkei index lost 58 points and our dollar is trading overseas this morning. Unchanged from Friday at 74.15 cents U.S. StatsCan will release its latest reading on inflation this morning. The federal agency's Consumer Price Index report will give insight on how high prices were in January. Canada's annual inflation rate has been slowing since summer, reaching 6.3% in December. Unifor's president says a plan by General Motors to build motors for electric vehicles at its St. Catharines, Ontario propulsion plant is a historic investment. From the Canadian Press Business Desk. I'm Karen Rebo. Back to now with Dave Brown coming to you live on AMI TV. I'm Alex Mike filling in for Dave Brown. Last week, the Joint House of Commons and Senate committees studying medical assistance in dying in Canada released its final report. Accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore has been following this story for the, a while. She joins us now from Ottawa to talk about what it specifically says about people with disabilities. First off, good morning, Megan. Good morning, Alex. Good to talk to you again. Yeah, good to talk to you as well. So let's, uh, let's get into it. It's never a, a fun topic to discuss, but it's an important one nonetheless. So can you begin by reminding us about the history and purpose of this expert committee? Sure. So um, this is this actually is really important context to understand what we're reading and how we came to here. So bear with me, everyone. We're going to jump into a time machine made becomes legal in Canada in 2016 uh, with a law that is called C-14. Um, that's the number that you'll hear people talk about. And that law, C-14, said that five years after the law took effect, the government of Canada needed, needed to create a committee that would study the law, so study C-14, the law that created medical assistance in dying, and also study the state of palliative care in Canada. So a committee was supposed to be struck in 2021 to study those two things. However, before that committee could be created or do its report, the government introduced amendments to expand made to individuals whose deaths are not reasonably foreseeable. As uh, people remember, those amendments were originally introduced in February 2020, and then the law that um, created those amendments, Bill C-7, was passed in March 2021. That's important because this happened before an original committee to study made was created and did its work. Now, when Bill C-7 was passed in March 2021, it included a clause that said that the government needed to create a joint committee of the House of Commons and the Senate to examine mental, so made for mental illness, made for mature minors, um, advanced directives, the way that made is impact people with disabilities, and then palliative care. So another committee was in a man and what this, uh, what the House of Commons and the Senate members who were on this committee looked at, which fused with us. Recommending. Sure. 
So the committee made 23 recommendations. Um, aligners whose deaths are reasonably foreseeable. So that's what we typically call track one death. Um, and in those situations, parents need to be consulted. So parents, guardians need to be consulted, but they do not have to agree with the decision of the mature minor. And the report also recommends that the government allow for the creation of advanced directives, which would allow individuals to um, set out at what point they would like to uh, die by maid after they've received a certain diagnosis. And that deals with a, a, an issue of consent to uh, receive maid in Canada. You need to give final consent before the um, either the injection is given to you or before you're given the, the oral medication. Um, and an advanced directive deals with this question of what if somebody has lost the ability to consent. Right. And in terms of people with disabilities specifically, what are the recommendations there? Sure. So there's a few about that. Um, the first one is that the government implement measures to ensure economic security and reduce poverty among people with disabilities. Uh, there's been a lot of talk about that in general uh, lately with disability policy. And then a couple other ones. One is that, and I quote, the, they recommend that the government explore potential amendments to the criminal code that would avoid stigmatizing persons with disabilities without restricting their access to MAID. And this recommendation goes for, further to say that this could possibly uh, mean that we remove the word disability from the uh, sections of the criminal code that deal with medical assistance and dying, but there would have to be consultation with other government departments to see what the ramifications of changing the law would be. And then finally, there is a recommendation that there be another committee created to review the needs of Canadians with disabilities as they relate to MAID, and that would be similar to the committee I just mentioned, the one that was studying MAID for individuals whose sole underlying condition was a mental illness. Um, and then as we'll discuss later, disability also comes up in regard to the recommendations around mature minors. The committees that are spawning committees that are spawning committees, yeah. it, it, I mean, they got to keep busy some way, right, Mike? And so uh, you, you have uh, spoken to some disability advocates on the uh, report. What has the reaction been from those you've spoken with? Sure. So uh, this report came out uh, last week. Uh, last week was a big week for reports, as Michelle McQuig just said. So um, people are still digesting this. Uh, there's a long weekend. But I had the chance to talk to Krista Carr, who um, is one of the national leaders of Inclusion Canada, and Megan Linton. Uh, Megan is a PhD candidate at Carleton University uh, studying institutionalization. And Krista Carr said that she wasn't surprised by the overall tone or the recommendations of the report because in her opinion, the committee had not paid much attention to the testimony of disability rights advocates and disabled people at these committee hearings. So the way a committee like this works is individuals have, individuals or groups have the opportunity to write a written brief. You write a little submission to the government committee saying your thoughts on whatever they're studying and or you can also present to them in person. And both Chris Sakar and Megan Linton did this um, Inclusion Canada has put together this uh, little three-minute video you can find on their website that just summarizes uh, clips, shows clips of how disability advocates were treated by members of the committee. And there was a lot of what you could say was very dismissive responses, um, 
questioning whether or not individuals with disabilities or advocates were actually experts in the matters of disability, uh, th that sort of a thing. So, so that's why Krista Carr says that she wasn't surprised by the overall tone, but she did admit that even she, somebody who has worked in disability advocacy for more than two decades, was still shocked by the how this report, in her opinion, showed a lack of valuing of the lives of disabled people, that it was so blatantly obvious, in her opinion, that the authors of this report did not consider the lives of disabled people to be valuable. And then Megan Linton, as I mentioned, her research focuses on institutionalization. Um, and so she went and presented to the committee about um, how a number of disabled individuals have died by MAID in institutions. Um, and Senator Pamela Wallen, essentially told her that she could not say that. Like, there's this clip of like this exchange between the two of them, of the senator saying, actually, we can't say things like this at, at a committee hearing. Um, as Megan, a quote from her, she mentioned that disabled people were treated like footnotes. Like, any comment from a disability rights activist would often, like, they would say, you know, so-and-so had concerns about X, little footnote, you can get more details there. So concerns were often very, um, like, like skimmed over, not really explored in depth. You mentioned a bit before, too, that there was the idea of removing disability to, to help uh, limit the uh, stigma uh, mm -hmm. against people with disabilities. When you were you were talking to these experts, like what were their impressions or or thoughts on that strategy, and what do they think it was going to be effective? Right. So for a bit of context, there, um, one of the reasons why the laws around medical assistance and dying in Canada are often critiqued for being ableist by having this assumption that a disabled life is not worth living is because the law itself says that a disability can be a reason for you to uh, get made. Um, so it, it's black and white in the law, and this has caused a lot of concern among people. So I asked Krista Carr, you know, like, do you think that if we remove this word, it will alleviate this concern? And she doesn't think it would, because the same portion of the law that mentions disability, like it talks about having a grievous and irremediable medical condition. That's what one needs to have to um, qualify for MAID. And she, and she pointed out, like, many doctors are still going to interpret a disability as being a grievous and irremediable medical condition. So in her opinion, even if we remove the, dis the word disability, it's going to come down to semantics. People with disabilities are still going to be vulnerable um, so she would say, and this is an opinion that is held by many disability advocates in this country, that the only way to ensure that disabled Canadians' lives are protected by um, being coerced into MAID is to reinstate this safeguard that you can only receive MAID if your quote-unquote natural death is reasonably foreseeable, that that was the only safeguard that could protect vulnerable people from being coerced into receiving MAID. Yeah, that's a very important distinction. Now, were there any disagreements within the actual uh, report? Uh, yeah, so, there, so there's uh, the report itself, and then there's some appendices. And one of the appendix appendix, an appendix there, uh, was the report by the dissenting members of the committee, which in this case would be the conservative 
members, uh, the political allegiances get a little different when we're talking about Senate as opposed to House of Commons. But there, it, there was a report that the dissenting members of this committee wrote, and they disagree with expanding made to mature minors. Um, full stop. There was a disagreement on that. And in terms of advanced directives, they had mixed opinions on this. So some uh, members of this dissenting group were opposed to advanced directives. Uh, another member of this group thought that there could be a place for advanced directives if there was more research done on how it should uh, be done. The dissenting committee did agree with recommendations about expanding palliative care or increasing economic supports for disabled Canadians. Like those aren't really actually controversial uh, recommendations, but they did say that the committee should have examined the adequacy of existing safeguards that are already in the made legislation. And they would say that that was actually something that they should have been do doing um, already, should have been part of like, this part of their mandate. And they called it a missed opportunity, especially when there's been uh, some more growing public awareness about the inadequacy of the existing safeguards. So this committee recommends that an expert committee be formed to examine the effectiveness of existing safeguards. Right. Uh, we, we have to wrap up, Megan, but before we do, I wanna give you a chance. So was there anything in particular that stood out to you on this report? Yeah, sure. So there were a few things. Um, I cried. Um, Journalists have feelings too. Um, I cried several times reading this. Um, I would agree with the opinion that was expressed to me that the views of people who were critical of made expansion or were concerned about how people with disabilities have been put at risk uh, were, uh, were not considered. So like, it would be like, they would maybe get a few words and a quotation mark and then a footnote, but then somebody who was supportive of MAID, there would be literally paragraphs of their verbatim testimony at the Senate. So it was, um, it was really obvious. Like it was, yeah, like there wasn't a lot of engagement on the disability uh, concerns about that. There were also no stories included from family members who have questioned why their relatives have died by MAID, even though those individuals testified to the committee, they submitted briefs to the committee. I've spoken to some of those individuals as a reporter. Uh, that was a big part of this story that's not in there. And then finally, one thing at the end that um, I don't know if it surprised me, but I thought it was um, pretty disappointing from a government appointed committee. And I say this with all due respect to all members of parliament and senators who were involved in this. So at the end of this report, there is a list of supplemental materials, like court decisions, that type of thing that you can dive into if you would like more um, information about MAID and the history of it in Canada. And in that, the uh, committee included links and references to a couple of recent uh, public polls that have been done, um, I believe by Ignis Reid, that show what their claim to show public support for medical assistance in dying and expanding it. They're hyperlinked. So if you click on the link, which I did, uh, you can get the results of those polls and those surveys, and we'll find out very quickly that those public opinion polls were commissioned by Dying with Dignity Canada, which is a large pro-made lobby. Um, the fact that Dying with Dignity is the one who conducted and they like, commissioned, paid for those public opinion reports is not included in this committee's supplementary report. 
Um, I think that's a key detail when you're reporting on polling. You need to say who funded it and why. Like, is there a public interest group that's behind this? And the committee did not do that. It was, it's an easy thing that you can include. It's just a few words. They deliberately chose not to disclose who was funding the research that they were citing. Well, Megan, this is why it's, it's so important to have reporters like you who are following this story, following this report, keeping accountability on it and, and keeping us informed. So thank you. I know this is such a, a tough topic to cover, but it's an important one. So thank you for all the work you're doing and sharing uh, the report with us today. Thanks for having me. Have a good show. Yeah, you too. That is Megan Gilmore, our accessibility reporter. And you can follow her on Twitter at Megan Gilmore. And so uh, coming up next, we have community reporter Louise Levesque-Burley sharing tips on navigating criminal record checks for new jobs and volunteer positions. You're watching now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back to Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Applying for a new job or volunteer position isn't quite what it used to be. There's now online application processes. There's a customized resume you got to do, a cover letter, a list of references, sometimes even a portfolio. So, and these days, maybe there might even have to be a background check included, but exactly but what exactly do you do if you are required or requested to get a background check? Community reporter Louise Levesque-Burley in Moncton, New Brunswick, has some tips to share on the process. Good morning, Louise. How are you doing? Good morning, Alex. How are you? Oh, not too bad. So let's let's dive into this. You did a background, a criminal record check for a new job that you're doing. So what was required of you to complete this background check? Well, uh, Alex, there was two different um, processes that I had the choice to do. Uh, one was online and um, with its sterling back check, it's called. And what happens is the organization that either contracts me out or I do volunteer work at um, sends you a link from that particular site and then you click on it and you begin the process well um not accessible for those that use voice software i never got past the first page so the reason online it's a free you do not have to pay any money so what happened is i had to get somebody to support me to do the completion of this and then um at the end, it said, you have no credit uh, with this company. And the reason is that I went back and checked and uh, with, with my friend is that they asked for your birth name. Well, my birth name, people don't call me my birth name. My birth name is Marie Jose Louise Levesque but they call me Louise Levesque Burley. Okay, so when you put that in the system, well, guess what? It's no good. So that's the first one. And then the second one that costs money is the police station. So 
there again, uh, you have to fill out oodles of forms when you get there. So um, they do not help you with that. They're very nice staff, but they don't help you with that. So you need to take someone with you. And then um, they require two ID from the government, like your Medicare, your passport. Of course, we don't have a license, so we shouldn't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, and then once that's done, it takes about five minutes and then they approve it. And if you are a volunteer, it's $25. And if you're uh, contracted, then it's $55. So there's two ways to do it, but neither one is accessible. That's what I want to tell people. Um, And more and more um, not-for-profit and charitable organization do not pay the cost of um, the criminal check of $25. So um, I don't know if that's going to be a hindrance for people to volunteer or not. You know, that's the question I was asking myself. What do you think, Alex? Well, you know, I I, I certainly think it does play a role, especially when you're talking about volunteer positions. It's different if you are doing it for work. Like I I have Mm -hmm. a long... Uh, history of, of always having to do background checks because I, when I was younger, I would always be working at day camp. So I'd do background checks with the vulnerable mm-hmm. persons, registries yeah. and stuff. And I remember always having to go to the police station. You know, you pay the $35, $55. You're filling out all the forms, as you mentioned. I, I remember in terms of accessibility, I think there was only ever like maybe a magnifying glass and it was one of those small, cheap ones that <laughs> never quite really worked. Thankfully, I, I was able to manage it on my own without without using it but it, it was always a, a struggle so uh it, it's it's one of those things I, I i agree there may be you know it, it may be a lot of hassle for some people that you know what i i don't want to go through all this these hoops to, in order to just volunteer there may be other places to uh, to uh to mm-hmm. donate my time but you came across a company that helps with record checks online like what did you find and, and how much did that service cost Well, the one online is free and it's uh, with Sterling Backcheck and, and, you know, but again, it's not accessible uh, very well with JAWS or NVDA uh, voice software. So you still need someone to support you through it. And then if you do like I did, put the birth name, which is not the name uh, that they obviously wanted, um, then, you know, then you have to march to the police station and pay your fees. So, um, I mean, it it depends how bad you want Mm -hmm. to volunteer. Uh, you know, if you really want to volunteer, then you pay your $25. And if you want the contract, then you pay your $55. So either way, um, but the online version is free, but it is not accessible to voice software. Yeah, that, that's a pros and cons. So it's important to to know that there's some positives, but there's also mm-hmm. some, some negatives mm-hmm. associated. So thank you for for highlighting those uh, uh, those options for us, Louise. Now, moving on to 
another topic of, of yours, you, in the past you've you shared kind of positive experiences from going out and dining and things like that, but this time you wanted to talk about some observations you have uh, about a food chain you've been enjoying. So how is this business doing in terms of accessibility? Well, um, the, the the place, the new coffee shop is called the Canadian Bagel. And I always choose, Alex, um, a coffee shop that will be very accommodating. And so when Mr. Fig and I take off from home and we enter the coffee shop and we find the cash and, you know, so there they're very accommodating. There's not a lot of those chains uh, across Canada. There's two in New Brunswick and actually it started in 1993 in Toronto. And what's really attracted me it was the fact that it's fresh from the oven and there's no additives and so I thought when I did a search on the internet I thought I'm gonna try that job now you have to know that because it's more on the healthy side um, it's more money but it's a really nice and and what they'll do when I come in now they know Mr. Fig and I so they'll say uh, what are you looking for we have this out right now every 15 minutes they have new uh, bagels that come out and there's a wide variety and so and then after they they uh, tell me the selection then I select mine with my decaf coffee then I go to the cash and they'll say okay we'll bring it over to your table and they'll come and help me find a table because the dog will take me where there's food <laughs> <laughs> for sure yeah. but here's the, the other thing the other day I was there and uh, the one of the ladies said to me uh did you know that we have a birthday that you can register and we can help you fill out the forms and on your birthday you can come and get six free bagels so uh she helped me so next month is my birthday so i'll get six free bagels there you go i mean that that's yeah. something to look forward to now i i highly recommend don't eat all those bagels at the same time so speaking no. from experience as soon as you you double up on bagels you, you are paying for it the rest of the day but absolutely now yeah. uh, the last thing you wanted to touch on was cnib's uh, new brunswick's new volunteer coordinator so uh, who has taken up the position and what programs will they be overseeing so the new hired is Carolise, and she will be coordinating recruiting volunteers for a variety of programs, some recreation, Vision Mate. Uh, that's another program that CNIB Foundation has. And so, and other programs that they will be coming up with, uh, bowling and swimming and that kind of thing. So there is a um she is provincial and she's bilingual and she's a dynamite person so if you're looking to volunteer or you want more information how to volunteer now depending what your position will be i don't think you get a credit check for 
certain position of volunteering. But if you're going to work with members of the foundation, then I believe that you need a credit, a criminal credit check. Okay, great. Well, and, and quickly, uh, Louise, how can people get in contact with uh, Caroline? Caroline, uh, she can be reached at caroline.leblanc at cnib.ca or um, the Moncton office, and they'll transfer the, the call at 506-857-4240. Perfect. And Louise, thank you so much. We'll make sure to have that information on our blog as well. Uh, have a wonderful day. And, uh, and uh, you, you know, too, Alex. Yeah, yeah, and we'll, we'll check in and see how those birthday bagels uh, treat you next time. <laughs> Sounds great, and yeah. I'll send you one if I can. Oh, perfect. <laughs> that is Louise Levesque-Burley, who is our community reporter in Moncton, New Brunswick. Coming up after the break, we have the Sports Chat with Brock Richardson. You're watching Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Hi, I'm Ramia Amuthan. Join me weekly for AMI-audiobook review, the podcast that explores new titles, introduces us to famous narrators, and updates what's hot at the Center for Equitable Library Access. Download episodes of AMI-audiobook review from your favorite podcast provider.